Welcome to QWERTY Writing Life Podcast, where we have candid chats about our creative lives. This is May. And I'm Joy. For more information about our podcast, monthly newsletter, or author resource series, visit us at QWERTYWritingLife.com. That's QWERTY, spelled Q-W-E-R-T-Y. It's the first six letters on your keyboard. So, are you ready? Grab your tea. Or your coffee. And let's chat. Hello, everyone. It's another week. Hello and welcome. Last episode, we shared six lessons we've learned in our pursuit of readers for our writing. And today, we're going to look a little bit deeper in thinking about our books and our art that we produce and answering a big question. What is your art's place in the creative world? And we're excited to chat about this topic. But first, let's talk about our creative weeks. Joy, what did you do? Okay, so I have been working out, I guess I've been testing a theory. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And this theory is based in the fact that I can't stand writing book descriptions. (laughs) Okay, so here's a little backstory. I can write a 90,000 word book. I can write you know, whatever. Books are no problem. But then summarizing said books down into 150 to 300 words or however many you're supposed to keep it to is like the worst thing. It is nails on a chalkboard. It is, it's just, oh my goodness. It has always given me fits. Mm -hmm. So back when I was working on the one for one good thing, I discovered something. And that was that I can often summarize a book in a really great way when I'm doing a social media post. So, or if I'm writing like a script thing for some kind of a video or a speaking engagement or something like that, when I'm writing Mm -hmm. it out for those purposes, there's just something different. It's easier. It comes out better. So (laughs) I decided to just think of it as a social media post. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it really did seem to help. But, you know, that's just one case. And so I have been playing around with that a little bit with some other descriptions, just seeing if this is, if I can get a process going is kind of what I'm working toward. So there it is, my mind trick approach to book descriptions. (laughs) I love that so much. I love that so much. When we were at the Mobile Literary Festival, I wrote my first pitch for a book and I I found out they're just (laughs) like hard. Um, And there was one of my books, there's like a very clear main character. And so it was a lot easier to write that pitch. But for another book, I, yes, there is, no, it's more of like a 60, 40 situation for the main characters. And I adore, the storyline for the 40% character and I want to I mean I shoved them in there like I put (laughs) (laughs) and your pitch is supposed to be so small and it was a it was a dual POV as well and I was like I need these people to know about Wyatt and his family and everything that you know like I I just need him to know them to know everything and actually oh no that was not it wasn't Wyatt it was LaRue and so, um, 
so I was like, I need that everybody needs to know about him and his sister and like why he's there and his motivations. Cause I love them. I love them so much. And it was, it was not the best pitch. <laughs> it still gained attention, but it was a very poorly written pitch because I wanted everybody to know about all of the characters that I loved. So I did learn that you do have to stick to one character's arc whenever you're writing a pitch and it broke my heart because yeah because it had to be so small and that's what had to happen but all of my I mean even like Dexter the driver I wanted him to be in there like because he's so (laughs) sassy and like (laughs) every time I write his every time I write his part I laugh like Well, like, we fall so in love with our characters. Like, we spend Mm -hmm. so much time with them. And, I mean, that's the thing, like, that I discovered through the process of writing these books is Mm -hmm. how much I adore, especially secondary characters, because Mm -hmm. they do have a purpose. Like, they're helping the main character in some sort of way. Or they're hindering, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the two. Mm -hmm. And they really have a a critical reason for being there or they wouldn't be there because we we know that we have to cut those things out but we do fall in love with them we really do Mm -hmm. and their stories are they can be so interesting and uh and you know we think about the main character all the time all the time and it's kind of refreshing sometimes to think about the side characters and how they became who they are and all of that kind of stuff and when we fall in love with them we want to share them with the world as well and so sometimes those descriptions, especially the ones that are super duper short, um, do kind of take a life of their own and become an unwieldy thing. So I like your I like your theory. I like your idea to where you are focusing on a platform that already values concise, clear wording that isn't like cluttered with all of the extra stuff. So that's a really good trick. It's a really good trick. We'll see if it works out. I'll let you guys know. Mm-hmm. If I if I find the key to unlocking the description door, I'll be sure to share. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what's interesting, too, is that that has a specific audience as well. And I think descriptions for the back of the books and stuff, maybe we don't consider the audience. We're just trying to pack everything in. So I wonder if that falls into your theory as well. Like if you were yeah. to give your book description an audience and a platform, mm-hmm. what 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 kind of magic would happen then? Yeah, and that that fits really well with our last episode where we were talking about authors and readers, and you know mm-hmm. having that ideal reader in mind, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think for whatever reason, we <laughs> tend to not think about that when we're writing the description. But honestly, that's probably one of the most important mm-hmm. times to keep that ideal reader in mind. So yes, I think you're definitely onto something with that. Truly. Truly, like I love the way that you said that because I do think whenever I write a picture or a description that I have a publisher or an agent or, you know, whoever's reading my query in mind instead of the audience. Hmm. Joy. We may have just uncovered something here, y'all. Light bulbs are flashing all over the place. Oh, yeah. And it's so simple. (laughs) And it's almost like, (laughs) dong. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We'll have our little doy moment here and then, you know, (laughs) move on. (laughs) Well well done. Thank you. And keep us abreast of the situation. Yes, yes, I definitely will. I'm very excited. (laughs) So tell us about you. What about your creative week? 
Right. So my week was filled with a lot of refilling the well. So I have been ill actually over the um, over the weekend. I got super sick. So, um, but I'm feeling much better. So if you hear some sort of nasally uh, clearing of the throat and all of that kind of stuff, that's just because I got sick. It was not anything huge. I just had the common cold. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> yes, people that still, still get that. Exists. <laughs> <It> still exists. <laughs> I know everybody um, was looking at me like, ah, stay away. What is the common cold? Asking me if I had COVID tests and things like that. Yes, negative. <laughs> oh my gosh. And they did go away pretty quickly too. So it's, I, I truly think um, that it was um, the common cold. <laughs> and uh, and I kept my, like, I didn't lose any sense of smell or anything like that there were no icky body no fever or anything it was just like a head cold <laughs> so yeah but it's funny that we have to think about those things now and how things have changed since uh 2020 so that's true you sneeze in a store and you're like immediately yeah everyone's glaring at you like huh? right right <laughs> it's a thing it truly is so um so I was dealing with that and wasn't feeling super great. And uh, and so I took some time to rest, which is not normal for me. Normally, I'm just like barreling through and <laughs> trying to finish things. Um, but I did I take some time to rest. And I've been rereading, which I enjoy doing. There are some people who don't. I am not that person. I enjoy rereading. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> I like to see the things that I might have missed in a previous reading. I love to feel, I think it's miraculous, really, how you can feel the same emotions that you felt when you read it the first time, even though you know what's already happened and you know what's coming up next, but no, it still breaks your heart or it makes you happy or, you know, like you still feel all of the same things and it's super brilliant to me. And then, um, and then also it's a very comforting thing for me as well. So I'm not going to be surprised or shocked or, you know, there's not going to be, um, anything that is uh, unexpected whenever I reread because I know what's going to happen. Right. And so, um, it's a pretty low emotional, you know, thing for me. So, um, I know that it's going to be comforting and, I already know that I like the book, right? Because I've already read it. So I don't have to get frustrated if I don't like the story. <laughs> so I already have it. So I've been, yes, so that's what I've been doing. <laughs> anyway, um, it's been really good to to also see how my uh, experience changes whenever I reread too. Sometimes I can like something one time really, really, really a lot. And then when I reread it, I'm like, what? Maybe I was in a different mood. You know? <laughs> but also there are things I'm like, oh, wow, this I didn't I did not appreciate how brilliant this was the first go around. And so I enjoy both of those feelings whenever you can kind of see how you've grown and how you observe and read and experience things. Yeah. Um, I don't normally reread really close together like generally it's like a year at least before I reread something and in some cases I think it was like 10 years or something for one of the books so yeah so that's how I reread and I filled the well this week 
<laughs> That's fantastic. I love that so much. And I do think it's very interesting to see how you've grown as a person and what mm -hmm. things do stay in the test of time. And like you said, it's just, it's mm -hmm. a comfort because, you know, life, you can't, you don't know what's coming next. But no. if you're rereading a book, that's a place where you can go to just be still and calm and not worry. And so yeah. I think that that is fantastic. It is. And books have always been a place, like a safety place for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, a, and there are, the, you know, escapism is a thing, but I also think that it's a safe place. So, and I think those are two different things and you need them in two different ways, but mm -hmm stay or this this week I needed I needed a safe place and that's where I found it was in the reread of these books so oh, that's wonderful a literary yeah. haven I love it yep <laughs> <laughs> so that's our creative weeks folks so we're going to talk about now where our arts place is in the creative world and as creatives we often think about our art as unique and honestly truly it is uh, a great example of that fact comes like if you were to give it, if you were in a room full of writers and you were to be given a prompt, um, every single person who had the same exact prompt would come up with something completely different. Some different genres would be, th be thrown around, all kind of crazy characters would be in there. But despite the common beginning, there would be something unique that came out of it. Yeah. Definitely. Now, however, the experts <laughs> love to remind us we're no snowflakes. <laughs> we aren't as unusual as we think and definitely should never claim to have written in literary realms where no writer has penned before. <laughs> but we propose that the truth lies somewhere between what we'd like to declare about our art and what the experts may claim to be gospel truth. So, just as we are all human beings with blood and skin and bone, uh, and yet we are different from the next human around us, so too is our art. This is a nice thought. <laughs> <laughs> so for writers, our art will have similarities like binding, bindings and pages and genres and letters. Because, um, you know, if you're writing in English, there's only 26 of them. We share them all. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> But each will, will be different. Each story will be different. And I suspect that that is the same reason um, that we're different as humans, that there are no two souls that are the same. But that may be a different topic for a different podcast. <laughs> Today on QWERTY Writing Life, we would like to discuss three perspectives on how to approach identifying our art's place in the creative world. And we first want to acknowledge that while there is nothing new under the sun, as the birds borrowed from King Solomon, artists <laughs> have always been incredible innovators. So that is perspective number one. Innovation has a starring role when it comes to creative work. A tangible example of this is the genre fiction we all know and love today. If not for the outside-the-box creative thinking of writers through the ages, we wouldn't have epic fantasy, high fantasy, low fantasy, urban fantasy, and all the other <laughs> fantasies that we love to geek out about. <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is also a great example of how readers collaborate with authors in the innovation of literature. If it weren't for the voracious readers who beg for more low fantasy or scour the internet for new authors in the vein of J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, authors may not continue producing such literature and discovering new ways to pre present the stories in their heads. 
Yeah. So one of the most magical aspects of art is the fact that it's a give and take between creative and audience. In addition to being a mutually beneficial relationship, it's also a partnership of ideas and inspiration. The author, for example, inspires readers with his unusual cast of characters and, in turn, the readers encourage authors to write more in that world or in a similar style. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here is where innovation takes off. So creatives are then spurred to make new things. So like if one thing was well received, why not other lovely things? You know, why can't we just keep shaping the next story with things that we enjoy? And that's what I would say, I guess, as an author. <laughs> but um, Joanna Penn interviewed John Truvy. Uh, he, he's a well-known teacher in the story craft. Um, he wrote the book Anatomy of Story, and that's like used in creative writing classes and stuff today. Um, but he also wrote another book called The Anatomy of Genre, and it does kind of bounce off of the anatomy of story. And so uh, in this interview, Truby believes that transcending the known genre's characteristics or like common plot beats, if you don't know like what your known genre's characteristic is, it's like their plot beats. Um, Truby believes that transcending the known genre's characteristics is the key in creating literature that completely grips an audience. He suggests two ways to do this, and the first is to twist those plot beats or expectations so that there are so that they are unexpected to the reader. But um, but you still have the the tried and true uh, plot beats and characteristics of the genre, so they're not too surprised. <laughs> Um, and then secondly, in order to transcend, uh, you it can express the deeper life philosophies that your genre has, um, because genres, as we know, um, and just as we are, are more than plot points and systems. So I would also like to add to Truby's um, observation there in the interview, kind of like a 2B, two, two you know, like a point 2B. <laughs> Um, along with um, adding your perspectives on a deeper life philosophy, adding things that you adore or fear or are confused about or otherwise have a strong emotion for, a bit of you in that piece, um, that it would create a story that no one else can duplicate. Yeah. So do you know what that means, guys? It means we get to play. <laughs> Ooh, yay. <laughs> And that spurs more innovation as we as we create something new and fresh. Then we we continue on. It's like our ideas just keep sparking and they grow on each other. So, where does your art fit with the audience who loves it? It may take a while for you to find your consumers, but if you keep making things and sharing them with the world, the lovers of your work will begin to prepare a place for you. Um, later in the interview, Truby also discussed pulling in other genre characteristics into your story as well to create something fresh. So it's like how George Lucas brought a Western into space and made a story about it called Star Wars. Have you heard of it? <laughs> it's just a little thing. <laughs> so tied closely with innovation and an exploration of what makes up genre, more and more authors are crossing lines and pulling stories types together. And it's something that they, you, 
artists have been doing for a really long time. But I think that it's more noticeable now as um, as there are more opportunities for people to write and publish uh, their books. So we're, there are more just more people who are studying the craft. Yeah. Definitely. And that brings us right to perspective number two. Genre blending allows authors to explore their craft more widely while opening up wider fields of stories for readers who might not venture away from their comfort zones. So as I wrote my debut novel, Any Good Thing, it and then it evolved into its final form and I broadened my plans to include the four book Carolina's Legacy Collection. I really wrestled with this whole special snowflake philosophy. The issue was, in many ways, my books were unlike the others I examined as potential comp titles. So as writers, we always look for what's the, what's the comparison titles, what are, which ones are similar. Um, at the same time, though, they definitely showed similarities with a variety of works and could fit into more than one genre. Now, genre as we know is far from being a perfect science. <laughs> and let me explain that by sharing a little bit about the evolution of categorizing my books. So I initially called any good thing literary fiction. And I would add Christian or Southern to that depending on the context or who I was talking to, simply because it gave a broader understanding of what the story included. As I grew as an author, I noticed issues with using only one of those terms. And so here are some examples and, and explanations of why I found some issues with it. So literary fiction has come to be equated with college lit classes. And many people avoid the genre because they expect it to be boring. In some <laughs> cases, they might have a point. <laughs> but honestly, on the other side, devoted fans of literary fiction often choose their books based on the recommendations of academics and literary giants. And I am not currently known in those circles of influence. And I also didn't have the backing of a large publisher name behind me when my books came out. Now I'm making strides to kind of break into that sphere. Um, and I've been welcomed in some places that I barely dream dared to dream about a few years ago. But that is going to be a long process. So that wasn't my current situation. And still, I think using that literary fiction term will keep some of my ideal readers from discovering the far from boring journey of Jack and his supporting cast. So then, readers of Christian fiction are very particular and condemning, I might add, of any content they deem inappropriate. While my books will never contain graphic scenes of certain persuasions, Y'all probably can read in between the lines there. They do and will contain realities of a fallen world where abuse occurs. And they do and will contain the joy that exists inside the context of marriage. Now, while I have certain words that I are never going to use in my stories, um, I don't erase all the language. Instead, I weigh each word against who the character is and what he or she would say while also considering my purpose behind using that word. So depending on the reader, some might even chastise me um, on top of these things for a character's outspoken anger against God. While I, as a Christian, believe the words, scenes, and emotions that I have included in my books and will continue to include in future books are not gratuitous and do, in the end, bring honor and glory to God, I recognize that for some people, simply calling my books Christian fiction will be misleading for some, 
um, and it will scare away others who would actually love my stories. So at one point, I also tossed in the added gritlet description on the advice of a fantastic bookseller, but honestly, my work isn't as gritty as what is typically labeled as that. And then there's Southern fiction. <laughs> so a few years ago, May and I attended a panel discussion on what is Southern fiction by Southern fiction authors, and the general consensus was there's no agreed upon definition. <laughs> Instead, it really seems to focus on particular authors as the epitome or the template for the genre. Now, here's where I'm going to get myself in trouble and put my foot in my mouth, but I'm going to do it anyway because, well, here we go. I'm in my 40s now, y'all. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> she said it out loud. I know I did. <laughs> I mean, 21. I'm 21, y'all. <laughs> when you right. look that good at 40, I think you should just yell it to the, <laughs> to the rooftop. <laughs> it is what it is, right? It's just a number. <laughs> it truly is. All right. So here's, here's my thing. As I've read more of those epitomes, I feel less and less like I belong there. Although I believe my fiction is as southern as a deep-fried green tomato with a perfectly spiced <laughs> romalade sauce on top, I do not care to be likened to Pat Conroy. And now I'm going to duck for all of the rotten tomatoes that will be hurled my way by devout southern fiction readers devoted to the king of southern literature, after whom a prestigious award is actually named. <clears throat> so there we have it. All right, now we're going to be banned. <clears throat> Recently, I was asked why I don't classify my work as historical fiction. So, technically, most of it is historical, depending on how the reader classifies or defines that genre. Many readers consider any realistic fiction set in the past to be historical, and they gravitate toward particular time periods, World War II, Renaissance, Operation Iraqi Freedom, that's becoming more of a thing. Um, and I've seen similar definitions around the web. But the academic definitions, and the ones that are most often found in award categories, for example, those require the events to be at least 50 years prior to the book's publication. So, it kind of depends on what you're looking to do if you can actually consider it historical fiction or not. So, mm -hmm. for me, on official forms, I do typically check Southern fiction first with subgenres in rural or small town and Christian. Um, my books fall into all of the above with traces of military fiction and coming of age. Unofficially though, and here's the thing, this past year I've really kind of found the sweet spot of what to call my books when I'm asked about it on the street. Calling them Southern Fiction with Christian Roots resonates with readers, and I have actually enjoyed more interest and success using that phrase than the existing genres that we check the boxes for. So, genre blending and innovation in terminology has actually worked wonders for me. While none of us are truly snowflakes in our, in our body of work, we do bring unique blends of perspectives and worldviews to the picture. So discrepancies in genre definitions also add to the challenges authors face. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree with you with that. And I think it's important for us to, to share with anybody who's listening that what, what the purpose of a genre is. So the purpose of a genre is for marketing. Eh, that's pretty much it. Yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> so you see how Joy went all through these iterations and what she was trying to do was find a way to explain what her book is in a very like in, in a genre that found her audience basically. So I mean once you got to the place where it was southern fiction with Christian roots, you started seeing eyes light up, you started seeing pe- interest in people um and then after, and then those people who read your books love the story because you found the right way to describe it to them through genre that they would want to pick up your book. And I think that that's a really interesting thing here um, to say, well, first of all, it's marketing. I think second of all, too, if you can identify your genre before, you know, as you are planning your story, you have given yourself um, a fence to play in. So instead of having the whole wide world as, um, as your playground, sometimes it's good to have um, a fence and around you so that you can play in a, in a smaller area. You can, um, you can try out decisions and plot beats and twists and things like that inside of this area. And, uh, and you will be able to make decisions in, in a quicker way and also um, decisions that are more um, cohesive with the story that you're that you're you're sharing and what we can find is that you know our moods change because we can't sit down and write an entire story or entire book just in one sitting right so as we go through our days and we have life experiences and things happen and we move from writing session to writing session to writing session sometimes it spans six months or a year or more and uh and, and we change and our emotions change and so we we may decide that we're tired of, of, of this particular thing. And so we move into something different and all of this and, and, and or we're in a different mental state on another day. And so our story tends to be up and down and, and have, um, and have breaks and, and, um, it kind of fights with itself. And the less that we can do that, um, the revision process is a lot easier, right? So genre also helps with that. But mainly genre is to try to figure out where your book fits on a, on a bookshelf so that a bookstore can sell it, so that you can sell it, so that a reader can pick it up and say, yes, this is for me, or no, it's not. Yeah. So, yeah, would you agree? <laughs> I would definitely agree. But <laughs> <laughs> if not, just cut it out. <laughs> no, I 100% agree. <laughs> So when we think about like where our art fits in the world, it's good to identify the characteristics of your story and know what genre it most relates to and what other genres are kind of sprinkled in there as well, because that's going to help you, you find your audience too. So, and a direct benefit of discovering your primary genre before sharing your art is, is the marketing. So you'll find your consumers a bit quicker and then you'll surprise them whenever the you infused portion of the story pops its head up and it's uh, inside of the genre that they already love. Mm -hmm. So finding your art's place in the world can be a bit faster in that way. Okay. Also, our third perspective is kind of a bit of a reminder and encouragement too. And it's that art is not always timely. So as you are trying to figure out where your art's place is in the world, the sacrificial lamb aspect (laughs) kind of reminds us that not all new and fresh things are well received. There are a slew of innovators um, 
and artists. We now admire who were criticized for stepping outside of the labels and boundaries set before them. Their tenacity is our goal as we create new and fresh things as well. Reminds and me well, of Phoebe from Friends. Uh-huh. <laughs> because, you know, when she said, I would love to not be appreciated in my time. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I always think about, like, Pablo Picasso, too, because when he started, um, like, really finding his his style, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. people hated it. <laughs> yeah. It was not, it was not well received at the beginning. (laughs) So I think about that too, but they kept producing. I'm sure Phoebe kept producing and, and so did Mr. Picasso. So, uh, so while we are waiting for the world to catch up and to, you know, to discover our art and find a good place for it. Um, one way that you can be a little less lonely on this journey is to find other creatives who are innovative just like you in new and fresh ways and, uh, and, and form a community for uh, with each other. So um, we think, I think we talked a little bit about that in the last episode as well, but I think it fits here too because, my goodness, doesn't it sound lonely whenever, you know, if your art is just kind of sitting there and you keep making and you keep persisting and, and all of that, um, it's, it sounds like it could be a really lonely place if you aren't able to find a community around you. And we don't want that for you, Joy and I. We want you to be able to find your people who are your creatives. They might also be your consumers as well, but we also know that we need artist friends and people who understand, who understand us as, uh, as creators as well. So in short, keep making things, press forward, keep dreaming and doing and keep sharing and promoting. And that is how your art will find its place. Yes. That's so cool. cool. (laughs) I just love that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm kind of like, I'm settling into that, that last statement. It's just, I'm letting it marinate over me. I don't know what the right word is here, but I just love it. <laughs> well, I told you there was going to be some encouragement in there. So. <laughs> and we need that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the cool thing too, is that as your art finds its place and you become inspiration to somebody else, who's going to build on that foundation and then make something else new and fresh because you had the bravery and the courage to continuously make and, and work inside of your innovation Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and your individualness. That's not right. (laughs) We'll go with it. We'll go with it. We can Shakespeare it. You guys know what I mean. (laughs) So, um, so guys, you may have noticed that your art's place in this world is really not up to you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Truth bomb. (laughs) But your job is to make things and innovate and make more things and mash up your loves and then make more things and all along sharing them with the world so that the people who view your art can help you see how it affects the world and where its home is. Yeah. So and for, that's what that's what the whole episode is about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's it. That is it in a nutshell. <laughs> 
And then, you know, for authors especially, considering how your art fits into the creative world leads us to a consideration of the great conversation and how our work can be part of it and add to it. And we mentioned this topic as a shameless plug for later in the season of Cordy Writing Life. We have at least three episodes planned to discuss what the great conversation is, why we should care about it, and how we can add to it. Hmm. We hope that you'll continue uh, to tune in twice a month as we lead up to those episodes. We also hope that you'll join us in our chats about the great conversation because that's what QWERTY is all about. Candid chats, open discussions, and artist sharing with one another along this creative journey. And on that note, next episode, you guys are not going to want to miss the next episode because we get to have a fantastic conversation with Dan Blank. He will be here to talk with us. And as you guys have listened to the past few episodes, you've heard me mention him and his book, Be the Gateway. So this is going to be an excellent episode that we are very excited about. And I think you guys might be too. Yes, absolutely. But for now. It's time for a QWERTY challenge. <laughs> so we challenge you to consider this question. Where is your art's place in the creative world? Which of the three perspectives we discussed resonates with you? Perspective one, we're going to wait, 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 give you a little reminder. Okay, so that's what's happening now. <laughs> so perspective one, innovation has a starring role when it comes to creative work. Perspective two, genre blending allows authors to explore their craft more widely while opening up wider fields of stories for readers who might not venture away from their comfort zones. And then perspective three, art is not always timely, but carry on my wayward son, don't you cry no more. If you know, you know. (laughs) That's fantastic. Love it. So if you guys have another thought on this topic or examples from your body of work, we'd love to hear about it. Drop us a line at QWERTYWritingLife at gmail.com or DM us on Facebook or Instagram at QWERTYWritingLife in both of those places. We hope you have a great week. And go make something. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We hope this episode encouraged you. Like all creatives, we thrive on consumer recommendations. So please consider leaving us a review and sharing our podcast with your creative friends. If you'd like to continue this conversation, visit us on our website at QWERTYWritingLife.com or on Instagram at QWERTYWritingLife.com.